2: Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks.
0: The story of Zana is one of the most famous and hotly debated Almas cases on record. According to local legends and cryptozoological reports, Zana may have been an Almas that lived during the mid-19th century. Igor slips into Russian to tell us Zana's story. The story goes. In southern Russia in 1850, hunters stumbled upon something weird in the forest. A strange, hairy, wild woman. They threw a net over her and dragged her back to the village of Tina, where locals gave her a welcome befitting any wild woman of the day. They tossed her into a cage. According to local lore, Zana was less than thrilled with the trappings of village life. The villagers tried to dress her, but Zana was an unwilling model. And they made her cooked meals, but she refused them, preferring raw food instead. Over time, locals tried to teach her simple tasks. But Zana was only able to master basic skills. Eventually, it's rumored that Zana did find some unscrupulous admirers in town and had several children. Quit was one of her sons. Igor's convinced that Zana may be the real deal, a relic Neanderthal. And Quit may be a hybrid, a possible cross between a human and a Neanderthal.
2: Hey there, Monster Talkers. I'm Blake Smith, and this is Monster Talk. Today, I'm going to talk about some nuanced issues in the Bigfoot research area, and this is going to get a little bit monster nerdy, but please stick with me, because I think I can add some context that was missing in a previous episode of Monster Talk and in a famous book. One of the most frequent complaints leveled at science by monster believers is that science won't look into questions of Bigfoot because of a pre-existing dismissive attitude, and because doing any investigation into these matters can end one's science career. Of course, there are credentialed scientists who look into these cases. Jeff Meldrum and Todd Disertel come to mind. They're probably the two most famous active scientists who routinely examine this sort of thing and weigh in on the evidence. And if you look at the impact of this kind of work on the careers of people like Meldrum and the late Grover Krantz, I think it's plausible that there's good reason to be cautious about publicly associating your academic credentials with Bigfoot. To be clear, I'm not saying it's dangerous to one's career or to one's science aspirations, but one should tread lightly, especially when it comes to making claims via media and books rather than through peer-reviewed content. But caution around one's image is useful guidance even outside the topic of Bigfoot. We're human, after all, and humans love gossip and judging other people's actions. I don't think my association with this stuff has negatively impacted my career, but even with my own family, when people find out I'm spending years of my time looking into weird stuff, they tend to presume it's because of some deep belief in such stuff, not necessarily just curiosity. The idea that someone would be fascinated by and interested in these topics without also being some kind of weirdo seems impossible to some people. And, if you'll pardon an aside within an aside, I have to confess that I am some kind of weirdo, but probably not like they assume. But back to this first matter of science refusing investigation. It was because of this perceived prejudice against actually looking into such things that I was really delighted when Dr. Brian Sykes announced he was collecting specimens for a DNA study of Bigfoot, the Yeti, and other mystery apes. True to the aforementioned stereotype, there were scientists who said that this was a waste of time. However, I felt then, and I still feel, that this is precisely the kind of thing we should encourage as monster enthusiasts or experiencers to get to the bottom of some of these questions. And to sort of paraphrase things that Todd Dissotel has said, it's a low-risk thing to check a sample because in the remote chance that it should turn out to be a mystery ape, well, how exciting would that be? So back in episode 100, I was excited to interview Brian Sykes about the book that had resulted from this research. The Nature of the Beast chronicles his collection and testing of numerous alleged Bigfoot DNA samples to find out what they really were. I was not able to get the book before conducting that interview, which is definitely not my preferred approach, but I did do a lot of research online, looking at various sample chapters, detailed reviews, and listening to interviews with Dr. Sykes. I was as prepared as I could be, and after the interview was over, I confessed to him that I hadn't been able to read the book yet, and he was truly surprised based on how I'd handled the thing, which was great. I felt good about that. But the book did cause some controversy. One of the controversies that we discussed even in that interview was his disdain for the way that genetics research has changed to be less field work and more math and computers. Since this genetic revolution has transformed our understanding of the field and continues to expand rapidly as computational power grows exponentially, I feel like I should chalk that up to romanticism on his part for days gone by. Or at least, I prefer to attribute that to his nostalgia rather than to some Luddite desire to slow progress. At the time, I also didn't want to spoil the book for listeners because it had just come out and there was lots of very interesting surprises inside. There's now been ample time for such surprises to have been revealed in the media and critiqued. There are different ways you could look at Sykes' book. The text reads in some of the encounter chapters as though he genuinely believes everything he's told and then only with reluctance concludes that the genetic information found turns out to have mundane sources. A chapter dealing with a Bigfoot allegedly living under a tree serves as an example of Sykes handling of this kind of ambiguity. When I reached the tree, there was no knocking to be heard. Maybe the big guy had left his lair, I thought. Or maybe he's on his way back, adrenaline pumping, looking over my shoulder after every step. I did my rounds of the hair traps. Yesterday's samples and chocolate had all gone. Yesterday's apples and chocolate had all gone, and there were more hairs on the traps. On one of them... Around the back of the tree, I could see three long, shiny, golden brown hairs stuck to the gorilla tape. This is it, I thought. After decades of effort by cryptozoologists, here at last is a genuine Sasquatch hair sample. I reset the traps, opened a new file on the voice recorder, and assembled the camcorder. As I drove back to Marble Mount, I felt the warm glow of success... I had made the discovery of the century. I had three Sasquatch hairs in my pocket, and tomorrow after the big guy comes out for the apples, maybe there will be a movie too." From The Nature of the Beast, page 239. Now here's the thing. I didn't believe that Sykes believed. I presumed he was being coy in order to present the face of an unbiased and very open experiencer who was going to apply the tools of science to the question of Bigfoot. During my interview with him, I didn't explicitly ask him if the book was a romanticized view of this endeavor or if his feelings he described were completely honest to the best of his recollection. Maybe I should have. Regardless, I still don't think during our conversation that he sounded particularly gullible or excessively open to fringe phenomena. But perhaps it was important to approach the material in the voice of that persona to represent the position of an open-minded researcher? I could be wrong, of course, but I wanted to disclose that this was my assumption about the content. Other readers were less charitable in their take on the book and on Sykes' propensity for excessive credulity. P.Z. Myers, for example, referred to Sykes as, quote, a loon and, quote, incompetent end quote. I will link to a couple of Meyer's articles in the show notes, but while he may represent the least charitable take on Sykes' work, other people in the field have called Sykes Bigfoot news largely discredited as well. The big discovery in my mind wasn't his finding of potential hybrid bears as potential Yeti candidates. Rather, it was his findings around the famous alleged Russian wild woman, Zaina. Now, when she was strictly a legend, calling her a wild woman or a potential almasi or relic Neanderthal, while wildly unlikely, I, I don't think that these were necessarily malicious characterizations. It's troubling to note that with subsequent publishing of Sykes' work, the book has been retitled Bigfoot, Yeti, and the Last Neanderthal, which seems to be doubling down on the Zena as wild woman narrative with his published findings, I believe we need to reject those labels entirely. But first, let's go back and look at the story of Zena as presented in Sykes's book. As the audio clip in this intro suggested, the legend begins with a merchant traveling through Abkhazia when he sights and eventually captures a hairy wild woman. She is described as being incredibly strong, her suit, black-skinned, with red hair and apparently mute the merchant took her and sold her to what Sykes described as a succession of quote owners end quote he puts owners in single quotes but I'm not sure why does he mean that they weren't really her owners does he mean that he wants you to know that writing about owning a person is exceptional or that it's questionable I don't know Eventually, Zaina was sold to an Abkhazian nobleman named Edgi Ganaba, where she lived out her life as a servant, preferring to live out in the elements, ignoring the cold, and demonstrating feats of remarkable strength, speed, and constitution. In Sykes' recounting, he says, She never tried to escape, and began to do menial tasks for Ganaba, including grinding corn in his watermill. Though apparently not fully human, she became his slave. The Nature of the Beast, page 296. Ouch! I really, really don't like that passive voice here. She became his slave, not Genaba made her his slave. Now, Sykes is writing this in the form of a legend, but at the time he's writing it, I mean, by the time he sits there writing this manuscript for publication, he already knows the outcome of Zena's genetic testing. Later, he explains her descendants. In many ways, Zena's is a classic tale of wild creature, part human, part animal, captured and tamed. And so, it would have remained a story, and we would have known nothing more about Zena. What has kept the story alive is that she had at least four children with local men. The circumstances are unclear, but there are tales of drunken orgies and curious men being granted access to her in exchange for money. The Nature of the Beast, page 296. Of course, Sykes is not alone in retelling the story this way. It's as if in the cryptozoology world, you can't call a sexual assault or rape if the victim might be an Neanderthal or an Elmasti. I don't imagine there's any case law around that, but it's irrelevant because what Sykes' genetic research revealed is that Zena was fully human. The surprise only being that she was in fact fully sub-Saharan African in her genetic lineage. Now think about that for a moment. Are you thinking about it? Good. Now, think about all the legends of Zena you've ever heard or read or watched. And I want you to erase the word Almasti and the word Bigfoot and the word Neanderthal, and I want you to replace it with African woman. And I want you to look for the words like captured and replace that with enslaved. And suddenly, The Legend of Zena is a very, very different story.
1: Some people enjoy the waves
0: or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics
2: audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at Chinwag Pod and WagOn. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything
1: podcast. But it's not just conspiracies,
2: there's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Should we put any credence into the claims that she was extremely tall, that she was covered with hair? that she had no human speech. If we consider that the stories are word of mouth for more than a century before, isn't it possible that the legends are just a racially motivated way of mythologizing this unusual black slave woman being kept in a village in Abkhazia? That was my assumption after reading about Sykes' findings, but again, I hadn't read his book when I interviewed him. And since Karen and I are constantly researching for the next episode, I hadn't given the topic much thought until we covered Legends of the Balkans recently. During the editing of that episode, an episode beset by many technical challenges, there was a piece that got lost. But a tiny fragment of that segment hit me like a brick in the editing process. Our guest, Christopher Klimovitz, was explaining one of the fairy legends of the Balkans that of the zena in the regional lore there can be many of these entities but they all represent a kind of magical being that inhabits a particular grove or a mountain or a valley as a sort of protector spirit if you're a character in a legend in the balkans and you need assistance in the forest you can beseech the zena of the grove to give you magical help so in folklore a zena is a wild, woodland spirit. And our Abkhazian Zena was alleged to be a wild woman. Was this just a coincidence? Or was her name actually a descriptor, tying her unusual traits to a mythical creature? Or to put it another way, was calling her Zena the equivalent of finding a dark-skinned mute boy surviving in the wilds of Canada and naming him Pan? And a hundred years later, having cryptozoologists tell us that his name was Pan because he was black like a frying pan, completely missing the folklore ties. I couldn't be sure, but I wanted to know more. In Sykes' book, when describing Zena, he says this. Part human, part ape, with dark skin, Zena means black in Abkaz, she was covered with long, reddish-brown hair, which formed a mane down her back. The Nature of the Beast, page 295. I thought I would start there, so I tried to find any references to the word Zaina meaning black, in Epkaz. I was surprised to learn that the only references to Zena meaning black, that I was able to find were all sourced back to one place. Brian Sykes' book. I did reach out to Dr. Sykes about the question of this definition, asking who had told him this or where he had learned it. To date, he hasn't written back, but I would not be surprised if he was told this by his Russian guides in the region who were not Abkhazian. I tried crowdsourcing requests for help, but they didn't lend any assistance. Finally, I got in touch with some Abkhazian tourist groups and one of the workers there, an Abkhazian native, helped me find the answer. In short, Zaina does not mean black in Abkhazian. It is not even an Abkhazian word. But in the Balkans, we know that it means something like magical forest entity. What if you were a salesperson and wanted to make a mute slave seem more valuable? Would calling her a wild person of the woods, a Zaina, increase her value? For that matter, can we even know that she was mute, or hairy, or over six feet tall? What if these attributes grew in legend because of a racially biased need to dehumanize someone who was different? It wouldn't be the first time that people with different traits were turned into monsters by means of narrative justification. The original research into Zena was conducted by Alexander Meshdovstev and Boris Porshnev in the 1950s. They interviewed elderly residents who said they still remembered Zena and recounted her description. This is where the stories of her hairy body and extraordinary physical characteristics come from, from people who remembered this unusual enslaved African woman from a century before. Doing years of reading and research into human perception and the malleable nature of memory makes me highly skeptical of these anecdotes. But even if Xena really had unusual characteristics, she was still fully human. She was not a Neanderthal, nor did her description sound like a Neanderthal, nor was she any of the other species that are commonly attributed to her. She was a human being, a Homo sapien. If you search books, newspapers, magazines, and cryptozoology literature, you will still find people who have read Sykes' findings and still enthusiastically want you to believe that she is a Neanderthal or some other variant of a relict hominid. Please stop doing this. I understand how compelling the story of a wild person can be, In fiction and legend for thousands of years, stories of these wild people that were more animal than human have fascinated us. But this was no legend. This was a real human being. So I'd like to propose an alternative version of the story of Xena. This is speculative, but I think it's more plausible than the story of a giant naked ape woman who can sleep outside in the coldest winters and have fully human children. So here we go. Our story starts with a young Zaina, a black woman of sub-Saharan ancestry, living in captivity. Perhaps she was mute, perhaps she was not. Regardless, she was a slave and her owner takes her through a village on the Mokva River in Abkhazia. He meets Edgi Ganaba and tells him a very strange story about his slave, of capturing her in the woods, and that she is called Zaina, and perhaps is some kind of a spirit of the woods herself, or the offspring of one. Or maybe he just sells her as a mute and Ganaba makes up the story. Or perhaps there was never even any such story while she was alive. It doesn't matter. She was a slave and Ganaba put her to work on his estate and then he showed her off to other villagers. Perhaps he sold access to her as a prostitute or maybe the villagers snuck in and raped her. Regardless, she was in no position to give consent as a slave. She ended up giving birth to four children, including Quit. And Zena. eventually dies. But her descendants live on. Did her children tell stories of her legendary behaviors? Or were they ridiculed as being half-beast? I don't know. But they were likely subjected to the kind of racist bullying that happens all over the world when one's distinctly and obviously part of a minority with a family history that others might mock you for. Eventually, her son, Quitt dies too. And years afterwards, Bigfoot researcher Igor Burtsev digs up and steals Kvit's skull and another skull that might have been Zena's. He has them analyzed multiple times on TV shows and eventually by Dr. Sykes. Where are these skulls now? They were sold into private collections when Burtsev's Russian Bigfoot research business hit hard times. So now Zena, if the skull did belong to Zena, is still being treated as a piece of property even after a lifetime of slavery. And now, so is fit. My version isn't very nice. It isn't very mysterious. But I think it's probably closer to what happened based on the evidence in Sykes' book. I wish the story Sykes had told in this chapter followed the evidence rather than the legends. But now, at least, you know a little bit more about Zena and Kvit and their sad tale. Abkhazia has a history of African slaves passing through it. I've put some links into the show notes about that as well, plus links to other critiques of Sykes' book. I do need to add one more bit of evidence to my hypothesis around Zena's name. You may recall from previous episodes that my fascination with the fact that H.P. Lovecraft included the Tibetan word migo for his strange myconid lobster creatures in the Whisperer in Darkness. Sometimes they're called the fungi from Yuggoth. But the actual Tibetan term has nothing to do with Lovecraft's conception of these creatures. But while cryptozoologists will tell you that migo is the same as a yeti and that it means wild man. There is more linguistic subtlety there than may be obvious. It can mean the same as Yeti, a wild humanoid, but it can also mean something much more like a barbarian or an uncivilized, uncouth outsider. So an encounter with amigo that you see in the literature might refer to an encounter with foreigners, but it might also mean an encounter with monsters. Knowing how to distinguish the uses depends on more mastery of the Tibetan language than most cryptozoology enthusiasts probably have at their disposal. Or skeptical podcasters, for that matter. In conclusion, let me reiterate that I appreciate the work that Dr. Sykes did on this book. I appreciate the effort he put into testing these various bits of evidence to see what DNA could tell us. I appreciate it coming onto this show and talking with me. He wrote the book he wrote, not the book I necessarily wanted him to write. But it's what he didn't write about Zena that I wanted to address in this episode. Rather than look for a relict population of sub-Saharan Africans for some ancient and mysterious secondary exodus, I think we should instead look at the plight of one African slave far from home. There was no cryptid. There was no relict hominid. There was just... Racially charged legends, and a family that managed to endure and still exist despite the sad and deplorable things that happened to their ancestor not very long ago indeed.
0: Monster Talk
2: You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm your host, Blake Smith. Today, you heard about Zena, the African slave in Abkhazia whose name has become synonymous with the El a legendary wild person or Sasquatch of that region. Zayna's story has become entwined with Bigfoot lore at the cost of her real history. It seems inevitable that people will continue to spread the legends about her while the tragic facts of her case are brushed aside. But now you know more of that truth. It's a start. Monster Talks, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed in this episode are those of myself, and they don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms.
1: Longtime listeners to Skeptoid and also to our colleague podcasts often ask, what can I do? We all believe in the value of critical thinking and of the intellectual tools that help us tell fact from fiction, but we don't always know how to best spread those tools to others. Well, let me offer one easy and effective option. Skeptoid Media, that's us by the way, is currently in production on a feature documentary titled Science Friction about how the media abuses its science experts by misquoting them or editing them out of context, exploiting their reputations to promote sensationalized news or fake documentaries promoting debunked alternative history. Part of our mission as a nonprofit is that we will retain educational rights to give this movie free to teachers worldwide, alongside complete, professionally produced educational materials to bring formalized lessons in critical thinking and scientific skepticism directly into classrooms. To retain those rights, we're crowdfunding the initial production. We're just about halfway to our goal right now, which you can see at sciencefriction.tv. You want to know what you can do to give the tools to students? This is it. We're asking a basic contribution of $100. If you're on the team, now's the time to take the field and play ball. Please come to sciencefriction.tv and make your tax-deductible donation to Science Friction. We ask $100, but any amount helps. Donate enough you can even become an executive producer and get a legitimate screen credit sciencefriction.tv. Watch the promo and see our stories.
0: To stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up.
2: Well, because in the remote chance that it should turn out to be a mystery ape, well, how exciting would that be? Well, very, very exciting. That's that's very exciting. (laughs) mm <laughs>